Hey church, Pastor Cody here, and I just want to say thank you for stopping by and joining us in worship today. And while we're super excited that you're hanging out with us for this message, we also want to remind you that this is really just um, a supplemental resource that cannot and will not replace the local church. So while um, we're, we're glad that you're here, while we're glad that you're encouraged and, and, and uh, challenged and shaped by the Word of God that's being preached today, we also want to um, let you know that this is really just a substitute and in no way should forsake the gathering together of the local church body. We believe that the local church is God's plan A in speaking the gospel. So please come hang out with us here at rest um, this Sunday morning with us or um, go find another Bible-believing church. Jesus is preparing the church um, that's close to you. I mean, he's challenged you to get plugged in there. Um, Jesus loves the church. And we love Jesus and we believe that we can love Jesus better by being locally connected and serving her well. So um, just jump right in with us and we're glad you're here. So whenever that commercial comes on in my house, it's almost as if uh, the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir has risen up with my boys. And uh, they chime in immediately when that phrase comes out. Whopper, 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 whopper. They jump in uh, Junior double, triple whopper at BK, have it your way. And for me, it's, whew, I'm out of breath already, Cody. For me, it is, uh, it's somewhere between the Meow Mix jingle and Mambo number five, honestly. So uh, if you wouldn't mind, please just pray for my sanity when that commercial comes on in our house. Uh, and speaking of lunch today, whenever you go to lunch, if someone comes up to you and asks and says, hey, what did you talk about at church today? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to look them square in the eye, and you're going to say these two words. We talked about this. We talked about burgers and mice. Burgers and mice. Tell your neighbor really quick. Burgers and mice. Burgers and mice. Now, now we'll get to those two things, and we'll unpack them uh, together at some point in this for sure. Um, I promise. But anyway, I'm Adam. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are still in uh, bucket number two of our study together of Romans. And if you don't know, we've kind of laid out Romans in six buckets that we can carry together. It's kind of broken down into these six different sections. And today we're still in bucket number two together uh, that, that goes um, from Romans 118 to 320. And this is looking in at the wrath of God. And it's two groups of people here uh, with the, the saints and the ain'ts. And so the saints, those are the people of God. And the ain'ts, those are the not people of God. And that's what this bucket kind of contains. And, and Pastor Cody told us last week that, that this group of ain'ts, whenever Paul talks about them, it's Paul really describing um, the universality of mankind's sin and guilt. And so Paul, what he does is he divides the whole human race up into three camps, and then he successively accuses each camp. And, and there's, a, there's a picture, we'll leave this up for just a second for you, so you can see these three groups, the pagans, the moralists, and the religionists. Leave that up for just a second. And then we see at the very end in chapter 3, verse 9 through 20, Paul comes back and he's got a word for everybody in this bucket. But last week, what we did is we sort of sat down around this first initial foolish exchange that we, that we see happen. As Pastor Cody opened it up for us, it was the toy Jesus that he talked about. 
that tends to emerge whenever you and I, whenever we exchange the truth of God for, for a fake and when we worship and serve the created things instead of the creator God. And we all together, we, told, we agreed with Cody, we all said amen when he, when he described that uh, Doritos, the real thing, is significantly better than the cardboard general value anti-Dorito, amen? Right? We were all like, yes, yes, preach, whenever he talked about that. And, and so the big picture for us was that, hey, we all worship something. And if you and I, if we don't get, all, all get on the same page at a really foundational level, that God is the creator and the provider that must be worshiped, if, if we don't get on the same page there, then you and I are never going to arrive at a correct understanding of how the universe works. And so from the text, we've seen when, when this happens, our, our thinking, it becomes futile. It becomes worthless right at square one. And this futile thinking, it leads to incorrect conclusions about God and how the universe operates. And you're in my place in it. And we become fools. So that was the first initial exchange. Today, we're talking about a second exchange that we see happen in this text. And this is another consequence. Say consequence. This is another consequence that shows up whenever the people of God exchange God's truth for a lie. And so if you have your, your, your Bible this morning, go with me to Romans 1. Uh, we're going to read verses 24 through 25 together. This is, you can see on the screen, when God lets you have your way, part one. Do you love Jesus, Rest Church? Are you ready to study his word this morning? Amen, amen. Romans 1. 24 through 25, it says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. You know, as we read, as we read this bucket in Romans together, what we see is we see a pattern emerge with the Apostle Paul, and it looks almost identical all the way through, all the way through chapter 3 up to verse 20. And, 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 and it's this pattern I remind you of because you and I, what we can't do today is we cannot disconnect today's text from the previous two sermons and also, we cannot disconnect today's message from next week's message. Because even though it's multiple messages from us up here, it's really one streamlined thought from the Apostle Paul. And so it's all connected together. And, 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 and this streamlined thought is that all people everywhere have a knowledge of God through creation, but what many, many people have done is that we've suppressed that coil of truth from God and we've turned away from God. And the result of this is gonna be God's judgment against those who exchange his truth for a lie. And so what we're gonna look at and open up this morning really is two components, two compartments of this. And so first we're gonna look at the exchange the exchange of the truth for a lie in verse 25. And then we'll look at verse 24, the results of that exchange. So we're actually gonna work in a reverse order this morning in our text. And the big truth we're gonna carry along with us, and I had a few written down, but my wife picked this one. So if you don't like it, you can take it up with her. Uh, it's that you can have it your way, but are you sure that you want it that way? You can have it your way, but are you sure that you want it that way. So we'll pray together and then we'll, we'll work through this text together, church. Jesus, we love you. 
We ask that you would open up our, our hearts, God, and our, and our eyes. God, that, that we would be able to see your truth and that you would write your truth on our hearts so that we wouldn't sin against you. And Lord, as I was reminded by a friend this week, I just pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, God, is pleasing to you this morning as we bring this to your altar. And so I pray it would be seasoned by you, God, the Holy Spirit, and that you, God, the Holy Spirit, would come and, and teach us your truth today. And all the lies that we have stored up in our mind and our hearts, that you would remove them, God, and let them be replaced with your truth. Jesus, we love you. And in your good name we pray. Amen. 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 So there's an exchange, as I said, that's been mentioned in this text prior to what we read today. And in and, and today's exchange, it isn't the glory of God being swapped for images, so to speak, uh, verse 23. But this is the exchange of the truth of God for a lie. And, and what, what this is truly is it's an ultimate lie because exchanging the truth of God for a lie really at a base level is an assault on God's own identity. And so here's the exchange that Paul's talking about working in reverse. Verse 25, look at it with me. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. I'll read that again, just a section. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Now, this word that shows up here, exchange, I highlighted it for you because it's really a, a critical word for us. Earlier on in this text, in verse 23, Paul described this first exchange as an alasso. But here, and, and later also uh, in verse 26, what he does is Paul adds this little prefix to it, this little prefix to it of meta. And so what he's doing is he's bringing a greater intensity here to alasso, the, the Greek word metalasso. And what he's getting at with the word meta here, adding this, is that he's going, look, this isn't just a lie. This is the lie. This is the ultimate lie. This, is, this isn't just a bad exchange. This is the worst of bad exchanges because meta, right, it means to go beyond. This isn't just uh, some sort of bad trade-off. This is the worst one. So if in Cody's example last week, if it was an exchange, a bad exchange of Mountain Dew for Mountain Lightning, this exchange is, is Mountain Dew for antifreeze. This is a metalasso. But, but what exactly is the exchange that the Apostle Paul, what, what's he talking about when he says this, this exchange? Well, he's telling us that it's trading the truth about God for a lie. So let me just ask a really simple and pointed question on this church. What is the truth? What, it, what actually is, what is the baseline of, of, of the truth? Because defining this for us, it sets up the stage for the rest of this conversation today, and it sets up the stage for the rest of the conversation next week as we continue in the text too. So we, we have to get this right. What is the truth? Well, for us, or many of us at least, we as Christians, we have long held on to this uh, philosophical concept called the correspondence theory of truth. The correspondence theory of truth. And just in, in a quick nutshell, what this means is that truth always corresponds to reality. And also, truth brings us into reality. 
Therefore, whenever people deny the truth, they aren't, they aren't actually dealing with reality. Or even a simpler way to think about this, a simpler way to put this is, is that the, the reality equals the truth, or truth equals the reality, and, and, and an untruth equals an unreality. And unreality, what that is, 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 is that unreality, this is wishful thinking. This is a, this is a daydream. This is, this is fantasizing. This is romanticizing. It's an illusion. It's a, a, a delusion of what is actually real. It's a counterfeit. It's a lie. It's a fairy tale. And so for believers, for us, the truth about God has been revealed to us through his scriptures. It is revealed to us through the Spirit, through God the Holy Spirit has been revealed to us through the person of Jesus showing up on this planet. And, and this truth means that it's the standard. This truth remains true under any and every circumstance, under any and every situation, consideration even. Therefore, you and I, our faith, our faith in God isn't just something that is true, but, but our faith is in, so, is in someone who from every other truth originates. And this is John 1.14. It says this, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen this glory. The glory is the only Son from the Father that's full of grace and truth. See, God's truth, it remains true, independent of you and independent of me. So what is this, what is this truth about God that we're talking about? Though? What, what, what's the truth about God? Well, in, in Paul's context here in Romans chapter 1, in this little section, he's talking about the truth about God, that God's the one that's in charge. As the master creator, God has created all things with order and with purpose with order and with purpose that he has set a, a, a blueprint, a design in creation, over creation, and that, that God, he just doesn't make mistakes. And it's culturally timeless for us. His order of creation is culturally timeless. Hear that this morning. It's not based off of you and me. It's culturally Timeless. Now, unfortunately for us in our culture today, it, it, it actually often echoes the Apostle Paul's culture and that the truth isn't an accepted reality for many, but that our truth has become the way that I feel. It's about, I feel this certain way, and so because it makes me feel this way, it must be true, it must be right, and truth now is, is viewed in, in many terms of being subjective. So each person is, is right in, in their feelings apart, even if it contradicts what the, what the scripture or what reality around us goes to, to say. But in John 14, chapter 6, Jesus, he looked in at this phenomenon and he said, hold on, hold on, the, the truth is not relative. It's fixed. And it, 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 because he said this, I am the truth. Jesus is the, the standard of the truth. And so where does this, this leave us at, church, if, if when we're looking at the truth, if, if it isn't relative, what's, this, what's the reality for us? Well, this means for you and for me that it, the world, it is still round, even if Kyrie Irving says that it's flat, right? This means that for you and I, the answer of, of, or the question of four plus four 
It never equals 10, no matter how much I, I want it to. The truth of the answer is that it's eight. Even if I'm convinced, man, in my heart of hearts that God maybe has made me the wrong age or gender or, or ethnicity even, I must still contend in that feeling with reality, with the truth. The truth is the truth and that reality is the reality. See, Jesus Christ, he remains the son of God, whether you believe him to be or not. And so truth, it doesn't, it doesn't need your permission. It doesn't need your buy-in. Truth doesn't need your vote or, or consensus for it to be true. That's not what makes it true. It doesn't even need your obedience or acceptance of it. And what happens is that when you and I, when we view the truth as, as, as just being simply subjective, what we do is we, we suppress, as, as Pastor Johan talked about, we suppress that, that, that truth of God, and it leads people to believe, man, that they have this intellectual argument with the scriptures when actually all along it's a moral one. It's a moral argument. And so let's take morality, for example. If there is no God, if there is no God who has no right to say what is right and what is wrong, how could you and I ever, ever arrive at a moral absolute of any kind? This, this too is one of the great hypocrisies in our culture. People, they, they, they deny God and then they'll get upset whenever we talk about God or we talk about sin. Even though they function as if there's no, no universal lawgiver and, and no universal laws, but then they feel hurt or, or upset whenever an injustice shows up on their, their front doorstep. But it's like, hey, if there's no laws, if there's no ultimate lawgiver, then who or what are you actually appealing to? See, whenever a Christian, whenever, whenever we get upset over a particular immoral uh, practice or, or behavior or activity, at least it's consistent with the idea that God has both placed a conscience inside of us, that's coming up in Romans chapter two, and he's given us his word to direct us, both of which connect us to him. And so therefore we are just appealing to God based on the tools that he's given to guide us. Greg Banchin, a 20th century Christian philosopher and, and minister, um, in his book, Presuppositional Apologetics, he put it like this. I think this is so great. He said, imagine a person who comes in here tonight and argues that no air exists, but then he continues to breathe the air while he argues. Now, intellectually, atheists come to breathe and they continue to use reason and draw scientific conclusions, which assumes an orderly universe to make moral judgments, which assumes absolute values. But the atheistic view of things would, in theory, make such breathing impossible. This is great. They are breathing God's air all the time. Then they are arguing against him for it. And I'm sitting down on this statement from the Apostle Paul because for you and for me, this holds a lifelong value and a lifelong relevancy for us, that phrase, because they exchange the truth about God for a lie. And it's like, man, you can you could get out your spoon, right? And you can just you can just take your pick when you look at the world around us on this. It's like, yeah, Paul, like I feel you, dog. I feel you uh, uh, on this because I often ask myself or find myself asking, is this person that's believing this lie, are they actually living in reality because it sure seems like reality contradicts this. 
And, and I think from Pastor Johan in verse 18 of Romans, um, it really sets the stage up for us, Johan, when, when, whenever we ha- accept the lies of God and then accept the lies about ourselves. Because verse 18, remember it said this. You can look back in your scripture. It said that men are people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. And I bring this up again because that word for suppression there, I think it's incredibly prophetic. What this word in the Greek here, it means, it means to, to, to stop someone, to present, prevent someone from exercising their power. Whenever we suppress the truth of God, what we are doing essentially is we are de-godding God. We are de-godding God. And have you seen this, this sort of suppression? Have you seen this sort of suppression in, in our world? Because it, it exists everywhere. It exists from, from riots to protests, to misinformation campaigns. It exists and lives in our school systems. Whenever we've suppressed a particular truth around a particular educational curriculum. And look, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy by any stretch of the imagination, probably the furthest away from that. But I can tell you, I know, I know that currently there are active movements that throttle the networks and, and news and, and social media pushing this satanic, anti-Christian message. And, and what, we're, what, we're, what we're done though, John, is we're, we're indoctrinated to, to be happy because that's the chief aim now. That's what, that's what, we're, that's what we're told to believe, this, this lie. And so it's, 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 go, hey, just be yourself. Just, just be who you are, you know, love who you love. There's, there's not really, there's not really a thing such as boys or, or girls. And, and so you, you can just transition. Church, this is all a lie. And so look, I might, to bring this to an extreme, I might feel in my heart of hearts that I'm an older British woman living in the UK who likes to eat fish and chips on the weekend. But all of my reality screams that's not true. All of my reality says that this simply is not true. And then we'll come back with with people who make comments like this and we'll make comments back. Listen to this, We'll, we'll actually say this. Well, that's their reality. When in reality, that reality is just a fantasy. It's an untruth. Anatomically, biologically, sociologically, supernaturally, you have been created by the creator God and he just doesn't make mistakes. And just as, just as Pastor Yohan again unpacked uh, the, the glory of creation, how it shows God's stamp of approval uh, on creation, you too have God's stamp of approval on you. And in this amazing way, it will bring God amazing glory if you would allow it to. But what happens is that whenever we, whenever we do that great exchange of exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We're no longer dealing with reality. And what ultimately happens is that this order that's been created gets into disorder, gets into disarray. And, and, and you and I get this on the most basic human level, right? Like, I don't know if you've ever been driving through the, the drive-through, you know, maybe at Burger King before, 
and you go through and you order that flame uh, broiled uh, whopper with cheese and pickles and ketchup and mayo um, and, and not onions unless, unless if you order with onions, we're going to have to pray for you. But um, you order that, and then you order, you got your kids in the back, and so you order them some nuggets, right? That's just an inherent thing with kids. They love nugs. And so you order them some nuggets, and you get to the front of the drive-thru, and you pay, and you get your bag, and you put it in your car, and, 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 and you want to look in the bag, but you don't. You know, the Holy Spirit's telling you, look in the back, and you just don't. And so then you get home, and you realize you got your burger there, but they forgot the kids' nuggets. And what this happens at a basic human level is it creates disorder, right? Because now the kids are hungry. There's no nuggets. They're screaming and crying. You're trying to exercise the demon out of them on the way back, right? It creates disorder. Has anybody lost their keys before? Right? It just creates disorder, What naturally happens whenever you get God's order out of order, this is going to be really profound, is that it leads to disorder. God's order out of order leads to disorder. And so if you have a false image of God, okay, an untruth about God on God's order, it's naturally going to lead you down this tunnel of chaos. If you have a false image of God, then that means you're going to have a false understanding of sex. If you have a false image of God, you might believe in the lie of dependence, that Jesus isn't enough for me, so I always have to be in a dating relationship. If you, if you believe a false image of God, you might believe the lie of, of independence, that even though God has created you uh, in, in his image and likeness, and he exists in a Trinitarian community, and has made you to live in community, you believe the lie that, that, that you're not going to let anybody get close enough to you to hurt you. If you have a false image of God, it gets God's order out of order and it leads to disorder. This happens in our marriages, right? When order gets into disorder, it happens in our church. Whenever we start to treat the church more like a, more like a hotel than it is a home, Right? Because we're really, if we're honest, Eric, we're not, we're not loving her like, the, like God did. We're not giving up our lives for her like Jesus did. And, it, and it's chaos and, and it stems from accepting this lie. And, and when these situations, man, when they feel, when they start to feel like hell on earth, it's because hell is where all this stuff is coming from anyway. And so I just want to ask really quickly, church, where is there disorder at in your life this morning? Where is there disorder at in your life this morning? Because you can have it your way, but are you sure that you want it that way? Remember, this is God's wrath being revealed. This is back again to verse 18. I think it's like the springboard. It's, the, it's his wrath being revealed against the, the, the godlessness, against the wickedness. That's both belief and behavior. In verse 21, instead of our knowledge leading us to the worship of God, it's led us into this crazy, crazy sort of exchange. It's the illusory truth effect. The illusory truth effect. Or as uh, Pastor Craig Groeschel puts it, a lie that's believed as a truth will affect you as if it were true. A lie believed as a truth will, will affect you as if it were true. And Paul, he's, he's warning us about all of this in Romans chapter 1. 
And, and what he's doing is he's doing it by, by paralleling the creation narrative to show us where this lie all began at. In verse 25, he says, they changed the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. Now, I don't have time to run through all of this, but I really wanted to, but I don't have time for it. But, but what we see here in Paul's writings in Romans here is that it parallels the creation and fall account of Genesis chapter 1 through Genesis chapter 4. And, and, and so what Paul's doing is he's writing against this general biblical backdrop of the creation and the fall. And, and he's dishing out this um, decline of civilization narrative up against the, the, the creation story. And so it's almost like an anti-creation story that, that Paul's showing us. And so here's a, here's a quick snapshot of this from Genesis chapter 3. God creates... Um, Adam and Eve are, are, in, are in the garden, um, they're naked and unashamed, and in, in the right order, that's a really good thing, right? Right, married people, that's a really good thing, in order. And so they're there and there's no sin. And before sin even enters the world, prior to this, God has said over 10 times in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, it, it literally says, God said, God says, um, an example of this, verse Genesis 1:26. Then God said, "Let us make man in our own image after our likeness." God said, "Let there be light." God said, "Let the dry land appear." God said, "Be fruitful and multiply." God said, "Hey, Adam and Eve, there's there, there's a grace garden here with one law tree. Don't eat from that tree." So literally over 10 times God says, God says, God says. And when God speaks, we know that it's true because we see the evidence of him speaking come to fruition as he speaks from the word of, of, of his mouth. Creation happens. And so we know it's true. We know it's truth. There's evidence behind it. But then in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1, something happens. And maybe you've heard about this. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This is Satan in the form of the serpent. And he looks at Adam and Eve, and he goes, did God really say? And in case you're unclear of this picture again, in Genesis 1 and 2, God has said, God has said, God has said, God has said, God has said 10 different times. And then our, our enemy Satan comes back preaching a different sermon to, to Adam and Eve, a contradictory sermon to what God has preached. And he says, did God, did God really say though? Did God really say this? And, and, and he tries to rob them because they, he, he tells them, he says, hey, you could, you could be like God in all of your glory. You, you could actually be God. That's, that's what he says to them. He exchanges the truth of God with a lie. And church, this simple clue in creation, to me, it unlocks all of the Bible. All of the Bible, because I can point back here time after time after time where the truth of God has been exchanged for a lie. And we see this all across the scripture. We see that darkness is the opposite of light. We see that, that evil, it resists what is good. We see that Satan is the counterfeit of God. We see that demons are the counterfeit of angels. We see that our planet, our world is a counterfeit of the kingdom of God. We, we see that demon possession is the counterfeit of being filled by the Holy Spirit. 
It's the truth of, of God that's been exchanged for a lie. And there's, there's power in this counterfeit. Hear me on that. There's power in this counterfeit, in the lie. Because it, it deceives someone into wrongly believing that, that, it, that what they have is real and true and authentic and valuable. All the while, it's really just a fake. It's really just a counterfeit. And it leads to disorder and it always leads to destruction. John Stott says, says this quote, and we shared this last week or the week before. He says that the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, that exchange, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man, and man puts himself where only man deserves to be. Whenever you and I sin, what happens is that it stresses, it strains it frays the fabric of reality. And so this isn't, this isn't something new, church. This, is, this, is, this was happening in Paul's day too. This was pagan oneism. Pagan oneism. And what pagan oneism is, is that it tries to uh, merge the creator God with creation and instead of them being two distinct separate things. It tries to merge them into one, one circle together. Uh, today for us, in Hinduism, this is the Yantric Circle. In Buddhism, in Taoism, uh, it's the Mandela Circle of Dharma. It's the yin-yang. In Wicca, it's the Sun Cross. In Native American spirituality, it's medicine wheels and dream catchers. And so let me just say this. If you have any of those things, yin-yangs, dream catchers, throw away your demonic frisbee today. It's a lie. It's a lie. There's a creator God and there's a creation. And what happened is they worshiped the little g God that they'd made instead of worshiping the God over creation that made them. And this will be how society exchanges the truth of God for a lie to a lie that the masses just prefer. Yet in the end, you and I, we need to recognize that this is a demonic movement. This is a satanic movement. As in John chapter 8, according to Jesus, Satan, he is the father of all lies. And so listen to this. Whenever you and I lie, when we exchange the, the truth of, of, of God for a lie, what we are doing is we are waging a spiritual war against God. We are, are, are joining in with the enemy and we are trying to change reality by suppressing God's truth. And what this is, is it's idolatry. It's idolatry. The issue that, this is the issue Paul tells us as he drops this full and profound psychological analysis on the human condition. He goes, this is the exchange. And so look, you, you can have it your way, but are you sure that you want it that way? Next, Paul goes on to tell us about the results of this exchange. Look at verse 24 with me. This is, this is God's judgment against those who've rejected the truth, who, who've done that exchange of, of God's truth for a lie. It says this, therefore God gave them up. Underline that in your Bible. Therefore God gave them up. Theologians call this judicial abandonment or judicial deliverance even. That God gave them up. And see, sometimes, church, God's uh, response of wrath 
to those who who propagate lies in the place of his truth, sometimes God's response is just to hand them over. It's just to hand them over. Now, when you not think about, whenever we think about the wrath of God, we typically picture, you know, thunderbolts coming down from heaven or, or we think about people being turned into pillars of salt. Um, we think about these big, you know, these natural disasters, these cataclysmic kind of things that, that happen. But here, God's righteous anger toward the sinner, it happens invisibly. It happens quietly as he takes action by non-action and he removes his hand. God hands them over to their sin by letting them go their own way. And so look, you don't, you don't have to look, look for an earthquake in Turkey or, or a hurricane in Louisiana to see God's wrath. When you exchange God's truth for a lie, you're gonna feel that hurricane, you're gonna feel that earthquake in your own life. Because sometimes God will hand us over to our sin when he, when he pulls back his hand. And he's made it clear on this church. He's made it clear. He goes, hey, look, if you want to rebel against me, if you want to wage war against me and do your own thing and be your own God, sometimes God says, okay, you can have it your way. But are you sure that you want it that way? Paul, he proves the doctrine of depravity in a fell swoop here because God giving them up is God removing his hand from the, the proverbial steering wheel of grace. He removes his hand from the situation. He goes, look, look, this car that you're driving right now is gonna crash and if you wanna take your seatbelt off, by all means, go ahead. God gives them up. And so church, now every, time, now every time you hear that commercial come on TV of whopper, 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 you're gonna think about this verse of God giving them over and you're gonna go, wait, this is a different, this is a different kind of whopper that's going on. For God to give them over. See, if God's grace is acting graciously towards you, then God's wrath must be him acting in revulsion against sin or, or, or to put it another way. Paul says it like this, listen to this. Sin in of itself, unchecked, is God's judgment against sin. Chew on that for a second. Sin in of itself, unchecked, is God's very judgment against sin. Why does God respond this way? Because God knows that the things that you worship, the things that you serve that are not him, they'll never free you. All they're gonna do is they're gonna entrap you, they're gonna enslave you, they're never gonna fill you. And so his judgment on sin sometimes is just to hand us over to the sin. And in C.S. Lewis, in, in, in his handover in The Great Divorce, he puts it like this. He says, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, no, thy will be done. All that are in hell choose it. Without that self-choice, there could be no hell. No soul that seriously and constantly desires joy will ever miss it. Those who seek, find. Those who knock, it is opened. The other day at our house, my three-year-old Jordy, he was, he was vying and he was building his case for why he thought he could stay home alone by himself. <laughs> 
my, my wife, Laura, she had to go run some errands, and I had to go up to the church. And so um, in his defense, in his apologia, what he was trying to say is, um, he, sa- he says, I'm peoples, though. That's his defense for everything. Now, I don't know. He goes, but I'm peoples, you know. You know, the most extreme thing in that moment that Laura and I could have done for him is to look at Jordy and go, okay, have it your way. You can stay at home by yourself. See, you and I, when we often talk about the patience of God, the mercy of God, it's as if it's never ending, which isn't quite true. God's character, his character is infinitely merciful, but God's patience, it isn't. It's long, but it's throttled. It's throttled because he does have a limit in a future sense to this in regards to God's patience. Whenever your coffin closes one day, listen, or Christ returns, at that moment, if you've yet to accept Christ, the offer is off the table for salvation. Or in, in, in a present tense in regard to God's patience, yes, God is, he is slow to anger. He's got a really long, a really long wick of a candle. It's really slow to anger. But he does still righteous, uh, show righteous anger. He does still anger. As uh, one of these two guys said a few weeks ago, God doesn't just wink at our sin and look the other way. When God judges people, he's judging them based on his standard of righteousness. And he declares in the scripture over and over again that he's not gonna strive with mankind forever. And so when we, when we hear sometimes about God's infinite mercy and infinite grace, I almost, I almost cringe a little bit. And, and, and here's why, because God's mercy is infinite insofar as it's mercy given to us by a holy God who is infinite. But whenever that term infinite is used to describe God's mercy and not his personhood, I got, I got a real issue with this. Because the Bible makes it very clear there is a limit, there is a threshold to God's patience and mercy. And he will not forever Hold back his wrath on unrepentant sinners. It's all over the Old Testament. Read the book of Jeremiah. God pulls back his hand. In the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, chapter uh, 22, when it's a description of the last judgment, listen to what this says. God says this, hey, he who's unjust, let him be unjust still. He who's filthy, let him be filthy still. The Bible over and over and over indicates this to us because listen church, if God never judges, then God cannot be just. He has to judge sin or he's not holy. He's not a just judge. And so people will today falsely believe that because God hasn't shown up on our campus to to throw you know, road tar out of heaven like he did at Sodom and Gomorrah. We falsely believe that he's not real. We falsely believe that he doesn't care. We falsely believe that he's dejected and detached from us, all of which are lies. God will give people over to what they want. He will, listen, he will abandon them to sinful impulses. He will remove the restraints. If you want to go ahead and sin, you can have it your way, but are you sure that you want it that way. I was gonna talk about excommunication. I'm gonna, I'm gonna skip over that stuff, Caleb. This is, uh, in a nutshell with that, this is God excommunicating the human race for a period of time. In a local context, this, is, this relates back to church discipline. And it's, and it's really the worst step 
short of the, the final judgment of being in hell, being excommunicated is one of the worst things that can happen as you are removed from the fellowship. Um, and, and so here in Romans, this is a picture of God excommunicating the whole human race for a period of time, abandoning us to our sin. But wrapping this up, here's the particulars of what God has given them over to, continuing forward. In the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. The ESV, it renders that word lust there. Go back. It, it renders that word lust there as a, where's that? Epithemia. And the NIV translates that as sinful desires. But a clearer picture of this really is over desires. An over desire. It's an all controlling drive and longing, which is really revealing, right? about our hearts, that it isn't, it isn't even so much about the desire for bad things, but it's our over-desire for good things that we've turned into these little g-god things, and when that happens, it's a bad thing, an over-desire, and the worst thing that can happen to us is that God hands us over to our over-desires. Let's, let's imagine a, a man for a moment where his, uh, his, his uh, prominence, his identity, everything that he has is built up in his career. And so working hard is a good thing, right? Working hard, providing for your family, those are all really, really good things that you should do. But his identity is built around this career, and, and so his family and everything kind of fits in around, around that. What's the worst thing that could happen to this guy? Him get a promotion, right? Him get a promotion. Because what he's doing is he, he's sacrificing Everything around him for this over-desire that he has inside of him. Where he thinks he can find his blessing in this over-desire. When in actually, in, in reality, it's just going to leave him empty in the end. Paul says this, that this over-desire, it leads to, look at the text, impurity and to the dishonoring of their bodies of, among themselves. This is Paul here. He's painting a picture, again, back to Genesis, back to Adam and Eve. And what he's talking about is he's saying that this picture of Romans 124, this is a, a picture of an uncleanly decay, an uncleanly decay. See, when Adam and Eve, when they first sinned in, in the garden, their sin, it, it, it initially affected their hearts and their souls, but as their sin also affected creation and, and, and their bodies, we see a, a physical picture of their bodies begin to decay as a physical representation of the effects that sin has. And uncleanliness is the concept that's used here to describe this, this decaying effect that sin has on our lives. And so it's a moral decay that's happening. And so you got to think back with me here for just a second. Paul, he's writing this, this text about this decay. He says that it's dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because he's making this connection between sexual sin and idolatry. Sexual sin and idolatry. Remember where he's writing this letter from? Corinth, right? He's writing this letter from, from, from Corinth, and Corinth was a famously immoral city. And the apostle Paul's time, the idiom, idiom actually, um, to act like a Corinthian was someone who lived in a moral lifestyle. That was kind of the common catchphrase. In Corinth, it was a seaport town. And in the, city, city of the, city, the middle of the city, in the city center, it had a, a temple in the city center. And at this temple, there were over a thousand cult prostitutes that you could go there and worship alongside. And so Paul, think with me on this. Imagine this. He's writing these words, talking about connecting sexual immorality and idolatry. And he can literally visibly see this connection right in front of him. 
of them dishonoring their bodies. What's Paul trying to tell us here? Don't miss this, don't miss this. He, he's saying that, look, if, if you don't conform your desires to the truth, if you don't conform your desires to the truth, then, then you will conform your truth to your desires. One of those two things will happen. And so there is this inseparable connection between idolatry and immorality. Now, even though we've worked in a reverse order of this text together, Paul, he, he ends his thought in verse 25, listen to it. He says, he's talking about the creator. He says, the creator who is blessed forever, amen. I love this. Paul, he gets to this word creator and he kind of just stops, kind of just pauses. He says, he's blessed forever, Amen. And it's like Paul's like, look, man, whatever you think about God or not, it's disconnected from his blessedness. Whatever you believe to be true or not, God's blessedness is independent of your assessment of him. God does not need your stamp of approval in order to be true. He doesn't need your vote because God's truth is independent of your agreement with it or not. See, if you and I, if we refuse the truth, it has zero effect on God. It has zero effect on the glory of God. It has zero effect on the nature of God. But what it will do is it will always affect us. It will always affect us. We're always the one that are being in decay. We're always the one that are falling into to disorder and, and eventually to death whenever we exchange the truth of God for this lie. And this is some really good, good, good news, church. And it's some really bad news, too. That Jesus, he is a gentleman, and that God will allow us in our free will to walk through the door that we have chosen. And I've said this a million times, but Jesus, he will not force himself on anyone, so you can. You can do what you want to do. You can be who you want to be. You can live how you want to live, and you can follow that conga line straight into hell if you so choose to. And God will say, Okay, you can have it your way. Whenever we exchange the truth of God for a lie, you can have it your way. But are you really sure you want it that way? You know, I talked at the beginning of, of service today. I said, when you go out to lunch today, we're gonna talk about burgers. And we're gonna talk about mice. That's what you're gonna tell them. So we got the burger part down, right? Well, let's talk about some mice. Where's Mitchell at? There he is. You can come on up. You go get those mice for me real quick, okay? I'm just kidding. There's no mice. There's no mice. I just want to make sure you're listening, okay? There's no mice. He's just going to get set up for us. So have you ever heard of Universe 25? Universe 25. In June of 1972, there was a man named John Calhoun. He was a researcher at the National Institute of Mental Health. And what he was doing is he was conducting this experiment on overcrowding, uh, on the effects that overcrowding had actually on, on the mice population. population. And, and so John, what he did is he created this ideal world. He created this uh, sort of paradise of mice. And in this paradise of mice, it was, it was stacked full of resource. There was no need. Uh, there was plenty of water. There was plenty of space. Uh, there was plenty of food to go around. And at the start of this experiment, John, he dropped in four pairs of, of mice in this experiment. And, uh, and really at the, the start, they were flourishing and they were reproducing and, and everything was going amazing and, and, and great. But 
after 315 days, uh, the, the, after reproduction started, things started to, to decrease uh, significantly. And whenever the rodents, the rodent population, when it reached 600, what happened is that there was a hierarchy that started to form within the paradise of, of mice. And these, this group of mice called the wretched mice appeared. That's what they, that's what they called them. And, and, and so the bigger mice in the group, they started to attack all the other mice that were in this city. And it resulted in, in many of the male mice, they collapsed psychologically. And this happened, as this happened, the females, they, the, also the females, they didn't protect themselves and they, they started to get aggressive and even turned against their own young that they had in this, in this experiment. And, it, and as, as time went on, there was a low birth rate and, 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 and eventually 100% mortality of, of, of the younger mice. And so there, in this experiment, there was this new class that emerged and it was called the beautiful mice. And within this class of the beautiful mice, these mice refused, the, the male mice refused to, to mate with the females and, and the male mice refused to fight for their space. It seemed like all they wanted to do, all they were worried about was eating and sleeping, according to John. And at one point, these beautiful males and these isolated females, they made up a majority of this, this mouse population. And, and according to John, there was a death phase in universe 25. He called it two stages. He said the, 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 the first death and the second death. And the first death that happened here was characterized by the mice losing their purpose in life. There was no desire to mate. There was no desire to raise their young or, or establish their role within this, this mice society. And as time went on, the juvenile uh, mouse mortality rate went up to 100%. And so two years after the start of this experiment, the last baby of the colony was born. And in 1974, the last mouse, had, they killed off the last mouse in universe 25. Now what's crazy about this experiment is John Calhoun, he replicated it 25 different times. And each time the result was the same. It was the same. And since this period, John's work has been used as a model to, to describe the, the, and interpret social disorder and collapse in a society. And it, and it serves as a focal point for us to, to study. And, in, and among the endangered mice in this study, homosexuality was observed at the same time that cannibalism increased despite the, the fact that there was more than enough food and water to go around everywhere. And so today, in our culture, we see direct parallels of this with us. We see in our culture um, from weak and feministic men that have little to no protective skills or instincts on one hand, beside overly aggressive and agitated females who have no maternal instincts. And what is done, in the my study at least, is that it's led to disorder, and ultimately it led to death. Church, this is what always happens whenever you and I exchange the truth of God for a lie. It's no longer God's order, it's disorder, and ultimately it leads us to death. <laughs> 